In his 2003 book on the fall, Mick Middles asked Marky Smith if he thought that people take the fall too seriously. I've always wanted my work to be taken seriously, because it deserves to be, he replied. But no, I can't stand when people go too far. I just think it's pathetic. The only reason I agreed to be part of this book is because I know you won't troll from release to release in train spotter fashion. That'd be so dull. Welcome to the 15th episode of Temporary Fandoms, the podcast where we troll from release to release in train spotter fashion. But do our utmost never to be dull. I mean, there's no point trying to please that cantankerous get Marky Smith, is there? And in this episode, we'll finally be listening to the band that started it all. The Mighty Fall. As usual, we'll take you through their discography, record by record, and then join together for a free-ranging roundtable discussion to try and work out what it is that makes Fall fans so obsessive, and perhaps to help you and understand why Marky Smith's belligerence doesn't put us off completely. You can find this podcast in all the usual places, including our home on Beat Rehab, that's beat.rehab slash tempfans, and in our new home at tempfans.com, which is still pretty basic, but we hope to develop it over time. Either way, look out for the Spotify playlist edit that cuts the show together with the music for the best listening experience. Before we begin, a little temporary fandom's history. In 2014, the journalist Mark Burroughs published an article in The Guardian in which he wrote about the experience of listening to 30 fall albums in 30 days, and how he went from dimly aware to fully-fledged fan in the space of a few weeks. Early the following year, a few friends and I, a mixture of fans and the merely curious, decided to undertake the same journey, using a Facebook group to post and discuss the daily records. The experience seemed pretty special, and not long after we'd finished, we tried it out with a few other bands. Sonic Youth, The Smiths, David Bowie. By early 2016, we'd gained some momentum, and we'd gradually accrued an unruly mob of listeners, many of whom had never met in real life. This was no longer a friends and family affair. This was a thing, and it needed a name. Temporary Fandoms was born. It took another five years for us to make the leap to the podcast format, but now we're finally here, and you might be forgiven for asking why it's taken us so long to get round to the fall. Well, the truth is, I wanted to figure out how to do this thing properly first. I'll let you be the judge of whether we achieve that, so relax as we join some very special guests to take you on a journey through the wonderful and frightening discography of the fall. Welcome to Temporary Fandoms, and this is episode 15, which I believe I got right. My name is Ewan. I'm Nick. I, I thought he was going to forget that, to be honest. Uh, we haven't done that in a few, in a few episodes, so. <laughs> uh, and this is a big one. Um, Nick has basically talked about this in the preamble, but Nick, why is this the big one? Um, because the fall is kind of where Temporary Fandoms started. Uh, it's because we decided to listen to all the records by the fall that we ended up becoming a group that listens to complete discographies. Um, and we've done the, the fall today is the only band we've done twice in the Facebook group uh, because we did it again in 2017 when Marky Smith died. Um, and I, I joined the Facebook group not long after that. Um, and so these three, these pods are actually the first time I've listened to all the fall albums um, for various reasons, which we'll come into later on in the, in the episodes. Um, Couple of bits of administration. Um, obviously, 
listen to us on Spotify, listen to us wherever you get your pods. Um, on Spotify, there is also the playlist where there will be selected tunes to listen to with the podcast cut into that. Um, previously, our last two episodes started to drift towards the two-hour mark. So we're going to release more episodes, but shorter episodes now. So expect to have the full for about six weeks. Um, that could be good for you. That might not. That's up to you. Um, if you like us, please like us. Um, we're currently spending money to do this. Uh, it would be great if either you could go to buy me a coffee slash temp fans. Links are all in the thing and throw us three quid if you fancy it. Um, if not, please just leave a snap or review somewhere. That's really, really handy. And then maybe other people will start listening to us. Regardless, we're going to carry on doing this anyway because we're suckers for punishment. So we've got some special guests and some returning guests who are also special as well as my, Nick and myself. Um, first of all, we've got John Henderson. Um, John, you are the owner of Tiny Global Productions. Tiny Global. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> owner, the guy that the guy that runs it, and the owner. And you are going to be doing which albums for us in this I'm episode? Going to be doing Live at the Witch Trials. Dragnet, Grotesque After the Gram, and the mini-album Slates. Fantastic. Um, also joining us is Drummer of the Nightingales. If you haven't watched the recent documentary, it really was pretty awesome, even though I was drunk and fell asleep and had to wake up again and watch it in the morning. Um, Fliss Kitson. Hey, Fliss. Hello. How are you? <laughs> it was a Friday night. I, I, I realised it was on. I was halfway through a bottle of wine, and then I was oh, they're brilliant. And then I woke up and went... I'll watch it tomorrow. Um, Fliss, you are joining us, um, obviously, for a couple of episodes. Um, which album or albums are you doing in this one? I'm doing Hex Induction Hour in this one. Perfect. And obviously, there'll be more from you in the next episode. And rejoining us is the man that makes all our music happen, uh, all of our themes and all of our stings. It's John Fisher, who you last heard as part of Bowie, when we gave him 90s Bowie to tell everybody how good it was. Uh, hey, Jay Fish, how are you? Hey, I'm very good, thank you. How's it going? And you're doing nothing on the first episode, so I will come back to you in the next episode and ask you which albums you're going to be introducing on that. I mean, obviously, when I say nothing, you're going to be in the round table, but there will be no introductions from you. And also we have Nick, who is doing one, I yeah, think. Yeah, the song album this one, it'll be Room to Live. 1982. Perfect. Um, so obviously the next voice you're going to hear after the next bit of music will be John Henderson, who will be taking you through the early stages of the four. Um, please go off, listen to the playlist or pause us, stop us, go and find the music on Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube or your record collection or whatever and join us on this. And we'll be back in a bit. Hi there, this is John Henderson, and I'm going to introduce The Falls Live at the Witch Trials, their debut album from March of 1979. Prior to the album, the band had released an EP called Bingo Masters Breakout, best known today for one of its two B-sides called Repetition, and another single, It's the New Thing, likewise known for its B-side various times. Today, The Fall has its uh, mighty place in the pantheon of alternative music, but when the album was released, it got uh, middling reviews. Some people loved it, some people hated it, quite a lot of people didn't understand it at all, 
And for that, uh, I think you have to look at it in context. The uh, Falls album actually came out before a lot of the debut albums from people that were around in the early days of punk, like Vic Goddard's Subway Sect, The Slits, The Raincoats, The Pop Group, Gang of Four, The Cure. So there wasn't quite the template for understanding this new and revolutionary music at the time. The second factor is that the album itself despite being a really big favorite of mine and, and actually one of the first two records I ever bought, it doesn't sound really great. Part of that's down to the fact that singer Marquis Smith was ill during the sessions. They only had five days booked and depending on who you ask, they only ended up being able to use one or two of those. Consequently, there are very odd things with the production and the sound. Carl Burns allegedly spent most of the down days just working on his drum sound. Being a big R-A-W-K rock guy, his ideal sound was something like what you'd hear on a Rush record, not on a low-budget, post-punk indie label. To add a little context and some information that isn't discussed very often about this record, I want to point out that original bass player Tony Friel and original keyboard player Una Baines, who had also been Mark's girlfriend, both left before the recording of this album. Despite that, most of the material on the album dates back from, from their time. Uh, I think Tony Friel gets two co-writes and Una Baines gets one co-write on this record, which means absolutely nothing in the fall because the people who wrote the songs rarely got the credit they deserved. Sometimes people who didn't write the songs got a lot of credit, but they weren't on the record. And by the time they went into the studio, this new version of the band with Mark Riley playing bass instead of Tony Friel, and with Yvonne Paulette playing keyboards instead of Una Baines, they'd written a whole new set of music. They, most of the band seemed to want to record. Mark, however, decided, let's record all the old stuff and get it out of the way, which would have been great because they could have followed this up with a new album, except pretty much the band started to splinter at this point. Martin left. He was the uh, last original Fall member to leave, except for Mark, of course. Um, Mark Riley switched to guitar. Yvonne left after another single. Uh, Carl Burns left, and the band becomes quite a different thing in many ways, which we'll pick up on next with Dragnet. Welcome back, this is John Henderson, and I'm going to discuss a little bit about Dragnet, the second fall album released in October 1979, which, if you're paying attention, is only six months after Live at the Witch Trials, a really short amount of time for any band, but in this case, it's a very short gap when you consider the fact that the people that played on Live at the Witch Trials had all departed by the time of Dragnet, with the exception of Marky Smith, who was the Falls leader, and Mark Riley, who changed from being the band's bass player to being the band's first guitarist and occasionally filling in on keyboards. Everyone else is gone, uh, including especially Martin Brahma, who, with the exception of Mark, was the last original member to leave. So they brought in a couple of friends of Mark Riley's from a band called Staff Nine. Staff Nine used to open for the fall. A couple of the guys would roadie for the fall. And uh, uh, Craig Scanlon became the second guitarist and Steve Hanley from Staff Nine became the bass player. They also brought in a new drummer, Mike Lee, best described as a right-wing leaning rockabilly cabaret drummer. You can hear a little bit of that on a track like Fiery Jack. Uh, Mike wasn't the best drummer in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but he does add a certain je ne sais quoi to the proceedings, and uh, he only lasted for this one record, so he wasn't in the band for very long. Aside from Mike, this was largely the band that, that lasted, I think, through the Falls Peak period, about up to Perverted by Language, which uh, others will get to. 
Dragnet is an incredibly ramshackle record. It's uh, very lo-fi, uh, some say intentionally. There's actually a lot of controversy within the band about it, or I should say from former band members. Martin didn't get uh, any credit on the record. Of course, he didn't play on the record, though he claims, and this is bolstered by uh, Mark Riley as well, that he did write or co-write some of at least about five songs on the record. Uh, some of the songs were taken from Staff Nine and reworked with different lyrics. One of them is uh, Chalk Stock, which was known as Pop Stickers before. And to give you another example, there's the song Before the Moon Falls. This was a song with lyrics from Mark and music from Martin, but the band broke up before they recorded it, or at least that version of the band broke up. So Martin kept the music and turned it into Work, the second Blue Orchid single, with entirely new lyrics. Mark kept the words and had the band write a new tune for it. That became Before the Moon Falls. And there are a lot of stories like that in Dragnet, which we can get into in the conversation. It's kind of interesting stuff, though, because the album was very much uh, a hybrid of the past and the present and where it might go in the future. The album certainly had its fans. It had certain detractors. Uh, even among people who liked The Fall Before thought this was sort of a letdown, probably in part because of the production quality. I remember uh, being a really young kid in Chicago going to uh, outlet record stores and seeing 10 or 20 copies of this in Live at the Wish Trials selling for a dollar, uh, sitting there for quite a long time. It, it took a while for the band and these records to, to attain the reputation they have now. I will say this about this record though, and that is it really marks the point at which Mark's lyrics become very unique. Uh, you could say that about certain songs on Life at the Witch Trials, but here you have him sort of telling ghost stories and odd elliptical things with unclear meanings. Life at the Witch Trials lyrically was much more straightforward than this. I think this record forced him to think on his own since he was no longer relying on people who were like peers. And you'll see a lot better where this takes him over the next couple of records. <laughs> 